interesting to me because you said you had uh, originally had more libertarian um, values. How, how would you reconcile those issues? What were your problems with that? I was opposed to the ACA upon uh, its initial passage. Uh, I felt that the individual mandate was unconstitutional, but that was before I worked in healthcare. That was before I saw the impact. In talking with you know about the ACA, what I mean, there's been a big push since 2016 uh, to repeal it. What what would that look like if we actually were to roll all of that back? It would be devastating. It would be absolutely devastating. We'll talk about current events, religion, politics, philosophy, and science. You will be challenged. You will question everything you thought you believed. Prepare to be analyzed. Welcome to the very first episode of Analyze, the podcast. I'm your host, Thomas, and joining me today is Elias. Hey, Thomas. Hey, everybody. Say hi to all, all three of our listeners out there. Woohoo! <laughs> so today we're going to be talking with Sam, who's a social worker, about how his job changed his political views, on, especially on uh, systemic racism. Um. But first, I wanted to kind of give you a quick reminder. If you want to support the show, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash analyzed. Also, if you're interested in becoming a guest on the show, um, eventually we're going to have a website, uh, analyzedpodcast.com, where you can just go and sign up. Right now, that's still under construction. So you can actually email us at info at analyzedpodcast.com. Uh, we'll get the email. Uh, we can We can talk with you about uh, becoming a guest if you're interested in talking with us. Um, but, uh, without further ado, we're going to introduce our guest, Sam Adams. Hi, everybody. (laughs) So uh, I just wanted to get a background of first, you know, what is your job exactly? Okay. So I want to clarify to begin with, uh, social worker. I don't want to misrepresent myself. I am trained as a certified community health worker, which the best way to describe is social work light. Uh, we handle, well, resource issues for our patients, patients who uh, have problems with housing, food, uh, and other barriers such as transportation, and it prevents them from receiving medical care. As a result, it drives health disparities across the United States and ultimately increases health care costs for for all Americans. So um, I did that for three years. I currently work in the field of population health uh, for the health system I currently am in. And uh, it's kind of a somewhat unrelated role, but I'm still passionate about uh, health disparities and reducing them. I was really noticing, you know, you had changed your kind of typical political stances on things from more of a libertarian type of a view on a lot of subjects to a bit more of a liberal type of perspective. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I guess, I guess you could say that. Um, I mean, my background has always been a little libertarian. Um, and I, my beliefs go where the evidence takes me. Uh, and if the evidence says 
this is wrong and we can do something better. I feel that that is the course we should pursue. So I'm not locked into any specific political ideology. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really good way to be. Um, I mean, I think we should be open to pretty much any position so long as that's, you know, where the evidence takes us. We had been talking a little bit online. I just wanted to kind of talk about that a little further. Um, because you had been fairly vocal in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and when I was asking you, you said your job kind of influenced your view on that. I was curious what exactly in your job um, changed your your views? Like what are some of the specifics? All right. So obviously prior to entering the healthcare field, I had my own set of political beliefs. A lot of that was influenced heavily by essentially listening to talk radio Um Hosts like Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck uh, were uh, very <laughs> to listen to them too. Yeah, I mean they were they're influential and and they know how to sell their product, and that's the best way to describe it. Um, they know how to say the right things, and I firmly believed that they stood on the values that they espoused. So uh, the Constitution, limitations on federal government. Um, all, all of the, all of the major traditional conservative values. Um, once I got into healthcare, uh, I began to see that the world is not as starkly black and white as they would have you believe. Working with people in poverty, you, you see the barriers that are in place for them, and they're barriers that were constructed by society. Uh, redlining specifically is something that I focused on in the history of how that has impacted access to to healthcare for these for these individuals. Um, in one of our markets out in Richmond, you can see that <clears throat> there is still a segregation in place in the city with the African American communities experiencing worse health outcomes, higher rates of diabetes, higher rates of hypertension and heart disease uh, than the wealthier white communities. And that's something that we built as a nation. We created that separation and it still has not been knocked down because essentially we never invested in African-American communities. So that, that seriously is the, is what drives these health outcomes. It's not that these individuals are lazy, which is the stereotype that the right likes to really cling to. I hear that very regularly. Yes. And it, yeah. because it's about survival of these people. Uh, if you, if you don't have access to a good job, then yes, you're going to go for welfare. I mean, that, that's, that seems to be the baseline. You get right. welfare, food stamps, all of that. And it's not that they're trying to take advantage of it. They're trying to survive. And if that means I'm going to sell my food stamps to, you know, buy something that I, that I want to buy, that that's what they do. It's, it's just how they navigate through life and from crisis to crisis. Uh, before we go any further in that, um, you, you mentioned mm -hmm. redlining. Um, would any of you guys care to take a stab at like your understanding of that? I think, I think there might be quite a few viewers who may not. Uh, have heard that term before. I had never heard that term um, until this year. And, uh, you know, I've always been, uh, you know, my geographical location has dictated a lot of uh, my uh, observed knowledge of African-American issues, people of color issues. And so would you guys, one of you guys want to take the lead on discussing what redlining is? 
for some of our guests or viewers, listeners, whatever they are? Absolutely. So redlining essentially is a policy that was developed in the early 20th century by uh, essentially the, the large banks of the day. And what they did is they would take a major metro area and then determine how they were going to invest their dollars into the community um, in order to, you know, get a return on investment. So what happened is these these poor African-American communities ended up not receiving those investment dollars, which kicked off the generational poverty that we see today. Um, so th so the, the white right. communities, the industrial areas, those received all of the investments from the banks. And then um, the housing policies of the FDR administration actually also uh, compounded this issue as well, because they would not, the federal government, Fannie Mae, would not uh, secure the uh, mortgage loans for African-American families. So when you don't hold property, when you don't have a home, you have no gener you have no wealth. Mm -hmm. that, that's really where it is. And, and look at, and this is something almost a totally different topic, but let's look at the generation of renters we have now. Uh, home ownership rates are continuing to decline. So we may see, 30, 40, 50 years down the road that even our Caucasian populations, the people who are traditionally wealthy landowners, that's going to disappear as well. We're going to be trapped in this income bracket, everybody, because if you don't have that that home, you don't have that equity, uh, you're, you're, you're at the whim of, of the people who do own the land. Another thing I, I had, uh, I've kind of been hearing on, you know, the radio and even our governor, DeWine, I had to come out and talked about was uh, racism being a public health crisis. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because it is. I mean, racism is a public health crisis. Uh, going back to the health disparities, there's there's um, I recommend everybody check this out. It's called Healthy People 2020. Um, they're about to launch Healthy People 2024. It's a federal initiative to reduce health disparities across the United States. If we look at the primary disparities in health outcomes, if we look at rates of diabetes, if you look at rates of diabetic amputations, um, chronic illness onset altogether, there are huge gaps in outcomes between uh, Caucasians and people of color. It's just that simple. And one of the primary drivers of that is poverty because stress created by poverty impacts your immune system. It, imp it creates inflammation. It creates um, essentially cortisol. And cortisol is inflammatory to the cardiovascular system. And for most people, it's that fight or flight response. You're not in a constant state of stress so that the mm -hmm. cortisol level increases and decreases. When you're Living in a situation where you are constantly going from crisis to crisis to crisis, that cortisol level becomes elevated and stays there. So as a result, we see negative health impacts. It's the same thing as taking um, steroid injections on a on a day-to-day -day basis, um, and the health outcomes are going to be the same. You're going to see inflammation. You're going to see higher rates of heart disease. You're going to see higher rates of diabetes because uh, cortisol um, compromises glucose. Uh, your ability to uh, for insulin to do its job. So that's a factor. Essentially, the social policies we have in place and uh, 
what we call these in the field is the social determinants of health. These are factors that essentially we're all um, impacted by, starting from the inside, you know, hereditary genetics, sex, age factors. And then as you move out in these concentric circles, there's different factors that come in. So uh, things like the community where you live, uh, your neighborhood, how safe is it? And then you get into these personal decisions. Do you smoke? Do you drink? Do you exercise? Those play into your health. And then the next level out, we have these factors like transportation, the type of food you have access to. One of the big issues, one, yeah, one of the big issues in the inner city is these food deserts where we have nothing but uh, convenience stores and fast food. So let's the, the people of color are trapped in these communities. They can't get out because they don't have the wealth. We then plop fast food in there next to them. Uh, rates of crime are high, so it's not safe to go out, exercise, and walk. Transportation's limited, so you can't get to your medical care. Uh, it's it's a recipe for disaster, and that's what we see. Would you find that um, maybe some of the people of color that you've worked with might even be concerned with trying to leave? Um, the area, the, you know, the, the areas within a city or, or, uh, a, a, a rural area where they live, a community area where they live because of, uh, you know, the fear that, you know, if they go to a, uh, a, a white neighborhood, something might har- happen. Something might, might be harmed. Or they, the police might be called. Profiled or something. Profiled, which yeah. is obviously a legitimate concern. Even in the inner city, it's a legitimate concern. There's a there's an interesting dynamic that comes out in the inner city. And and this is why I say this is more complicated than than your standard black and white beliefs in here, because the community right. itself is tight knit. And they see mm-hmm. people who do try to climb out and escape from those conditions as almost traitors to the race as well. Um, right. These are things I have heard. Um, the, I, I worked closely with a banker um, who did a lot of good work out in the community, and she was born into poverty, had a kid at a young age, eventually went to school, but her family essentially disowned her because she went and got a white person job, you know, and mm. there's that dynamic in there as well. So it's obviously a very complex issue, but I think that with investment in education and doing the the things that politicians don't want to do uh, because it's seen as enabling the poor. We're we're not going to get anywhere. You know, I grew up, I grew up in a, a a background of poverty um, where I live in, and you know, the middle East of Tennessee. And uh, um, it's, the things that have been difficult for me um, were I just I mean, I was constantly surrounded by people who literally set the standards for me extremely low. And, uh, you know, a lot of people that told me, um, you know, I wouldn't go any further than, you know, you'll be lucky if you graduate high school, you'll be lucky if you can get a normal nine to five job where you have to work day in and day out. And, uh, you know, uh, it's, I grew up with a, what I would consider a poverty mindset. And, uh, I I feel like that might be a common, uh, place thing with a lot of people in poverty. Like 
they they have apathy because they're never going to get out. Or, or if they do, uh, they have to sell their their soul. They have to sell their culture. They have to sell out where they came from. And that may sound really strange, but um, I think more than anything, the people who are very um, kind of unsympathetic to uh, systemic racism, Black Lives Matter, those people, uh, they should understand that, um, I mean, that's they claim constantly if heritage is such a big deal, um, they, it's, a, it's the very same principle that uh, the black community is trying to hold on to and then get uh, belittled or, um, you know, uh, have negative things spoken about them because they refuse to leave the ghetto no matter, you know, wherever they're at, you know, financially or, or economically. Uh, what, do you, what do you think about um, kind of that idea of the heritage value, kind of uh, this, this idea we can't forget where we come from? I, I really like the way that, that you worded that, and, and you're correct with the phrasing poverty mindset as well. Um, where we come from is our identity. So right. we, we do want to cling to that. And I think that's, that creates a large barrier for people to cross socioeconomic boundaries um, because you feel like you're selling out. Oh, you know, poverty is such a, a it's, it's just such a complex, there's so much interplay going on between society uh, the relationships within the communities, uh, the social policies that we have in place. It, and you can't just narrow it down to one specific issue, but I, I think identity is, is a huge factor. Yeah. Do you think that could be why a lot of, uh, um, a lot of black communities, especially in bigger cities are, uh, super oppositional to, uh, what may or may not be gentrification. Gentrification is a, I mean, that's a tough issue. Uh, <laughs> that is a tough issue. I mean, when you've got property taxes going up, we're displacing people who are already at the bottom of the barrel and just trying to survive. Um, in Toledo, we have a healthcare system that is buying up large amounts of property, gentrifying it and bringing businesses in, which is great because it helps the economy overall and things are awesome, but it's pushing the homeless out of central Toledo and out further into the communities. And then we've got our own problems with that. Um, we don't have a game plan in place to deal with the people who are, are struggling within, within these systems. So I, I understand the argument from both sides, gentrification. Why would you be opposed to it? Well, when property taxes start going up, you're going to start seeing people kicked out of their homes and where they, right. They can't afford to get, yeah, where are they going to go? It's that right. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's really interesting. Um, I don't know. I, I would imagine it because, um, Black culture is an extremely beautiful thing, and uh, I can't imagine how it would feel to a community when some really rich white people come in and start deciding to change things when people that have lived in that community their entire lives are, uh, you know, they start to oppose that, and people are like, why on earth would you do that? You want to stay in poverty. 
No, it's I've lived here my whole life and uh, I know this community. I know what this community probably needs far more than, you know, uh, a friggin Whole Foods or some uh, frou-frou restaurant, you know, <laughs> like uh, and, and and that leads me. I want to ask you guys, you've mentioned how, OK, the gentrification, you know, we saw a lot of um, white flight, quote unquote, from a lot of bigger cities. Uh, but what's, do you think gentrification is going to lead to a point where it starts forcing, uh, black communities out? Like, is it really coming? Is it that far? I, I, is it going to go that far? They, where are they going to go? How are they going to get out? That, that's yeah. the issue. They've got nowhere to go. Um, so if they don't have the resources to leave, we're creating an, a whole new problem that they can't flee because there's nowhere to flee to, uh, yeah, there. Yeah, gentrification is is huge. I've never thought about this really. By the way, <laughs> I'm just I'm just asking I mean, I crazy really questions. How 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 do you get yourself out of that? So you talked about um you know the the food deserts. It's not just a food desert. It's it's also a job desert. Um, I work mm-hmm. all over you know different parts of of the city yeah. for my job, oh. and so I see literally everything from the richest people in the city to the poorest. And I mean, I can't even find a place to stop and use the restroom when I'm in certain parts of town, much less find food. I don't know how you find a job there to get yourself out, especially, you know, if you don't have any kind of transportation, any kind of a car. Um, I mean, what do you do? You're, you're, these people are stuck there. Yes, they are. And, and essentially, the solution is to bring resources in. I, I see people daily um, in you know, some of the poorest parts of, of town uh, in Columbus that tends to either be, um, you know, black communities or uh, uh, a lot of Somalian refugees. Um, both of those places, some of those people are incredibly hardworking. They'll have two or three jobs just to afford, you know, the rundown apartment that they live in. And they're not getting out. They're not getting ahead. Um, in fact, even the rundown apartments are getting expensive uh, in that part of town. Um, I don't, I don't know how these people are surviving, you know, and staying ahead of, uh, above water, you know, as it is much less, you know, pulling themselves up by their bootstraps to Here, get out. Here's the thing. And, and this may be crazy um, to say, and I know it'll be shocking to Republicans, but nobody likes being poor. <laughs> nobody wants to be trapped in poverty. Um the the debate over the six hundred dollar unemployment bonus was was laughable because they're saying it's going to keep people from going back to work. Okay, <laughs> who's going to just sit at home for that six hundred dollars and do nothing? I, I mean, most people want to work. They that's part of their identity as well. Um, a s- stimulus check each month of twelve hundred dollars is not going to cause somebody to go and sit at home. They're going to want to make more than that. Uh, so it's it's silly. Well, I mean, it's it's bad that that actually is more than some people make working really Absolutely. hard at their jobs. Um, I mean, it, that right. <laughs> that's already messed up. If that little money is keeping you from an even lower paying job and that's all you have available to you, mm-hmm. where's your path out? Absolutely. I feel like we need a guest that disagrees with us. <laughs> I, I don't have that that answer. 
Well, I was gonna I was gonna play a little bit of devil's advocate if you guys don't mind. Sure, especially thing. because I come I come from you know um, uh, Thomas knows a lot of this, but um, I come from a very fairly conservative background. I I was raised my family was really open minded, um, but as a young person getting involved with the evangelical church and the evangelical movement I was extremely conservative and. Uh, up until about three years ago, I was, uh, you know, a, a very, very conservative. I mean, I, um, I wasn't super gung ho on uh, Donald Trump at the time he was elected, but I was willing, very willing to give him a chance because he was so counter narrative to what I viewed politics as. So, um. You know, I, I, I did mention I was going to play devil's advocate. I just want to give a little background. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my, my, my response was this with the, uh, the urban um, kind of the uh, urban desert, the food desert, job desert kind of question. Well, guys wouldn't. I mean, a lot of major cities have public transit. Uh, do you I mean, isn't that in place for people that don't have the ability to um, attain you know, uh, the ability to buy a vehicle. Have you ever ridden the bus? <laughs> I was just going to say that. Yes. <laughs> I know. I, I, I was pretty aware that it would be pretty easy, um, especially in, in, in rural areas. I don't think mm-hmm. people, um, my wife is from Toronto, so I'm, I'm really familiar with, you know, being in the city of Toronto, being in the greater Toronto, um, area and, uh, yeah, it's wild. Riding the subway, riding the bus is a, a, a really wild ordeal. And, um, I mean, owning and, and uh, insuring and um, providing all the things you need for a vehicle in a city is much, much harder than it is in a rural area. Mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of people realize that. Um, or in a suburban area, for that matter. Uh, if you're driving around downtown any city you're going to be spending a substantial more amount than gas. Um, but I mean, you got to pay for public transit too. Uh, that, um, <laughs> I don't think a lot of people realize, realize that public transit yeah. is not free. I think we, I think it's like $3 to, um, get on the bus in Toronto, you know, uh, I, I'm not a hundred percent on that. Yeah. It's been a little while since I rode the bus, but, uh, um, the other thing I was going to ask, I, I did want to ask one other thing. Do you think there might be similar issues that the redlining with redlining and like insurance and as far as health insurance, um, you know, vehicle insurance, any kind of insurance for that matter in a, in a. Sure. So, so absolutely. Obviously the ACA has removed a lot of those barriers, thankfully uh, in the health insurance field where you would have, Increased rates based off of essentially zip codes, because if the risk pool is using more resources, they're going to be charged more for coverage. Uh, we tie our automotive insurance to credit scores. So obviously people with limited resources, traditionally, they don't have very good credit scores. So those insurance rates are going to be higher. Um, so the cost of ownership for a vehicle obviously goes up. Uh, so definitely. Well, uh, yeah. I, how aware is everybody of 
how hard it is to build credit. <laughs> I mean, like, um, you have to, I, I mean, even where I live in a small community, uh, you have to buy into a bank. Essentially, you have to put, I don't know, three to $500 down to get a card um, and then you have to repay that. And, and then eventually after, I think it's like a year, they'll actually, you know, give you access to a line of credit. Um, and, uh, so the, the ways that would make sense to me that people would be trying to build credit and it's the way it happens in the community I live in. I live in a, a small town in, in, uh, Tennessee and, um, it's a, it's a part of it is a retirement community. So part of it is extremely wealthy. And then, uh, a large amount of the community is in poverty. So it's really strange when you can, uh, drive by a mansion and then less than a mile away, there's a trailer park that's dilapidated, you know, uh, it's just a trip to me. And then, you know, with, if you're developing credit, where are you going to go if you can't afford that kind of, you know, three, $400 down, uh, you're going to go to a cash now type loan place, which I mean, you're paying like over 50% interest sometimes. It's insane. Absolutely. My wife had to do it, <laughs> you know, like we had to go get a, a, a small check loan and uh, to help her build her credit. It was insane. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, Thomas, what do you think, man? <laughs> I mean, I I probably grew up feeling like we were better off than a lot of the people because I grew up near you. Um, you know, there are a lot of poor people uh, in our part of, of Tennessee where we grew up. Um, we kind of looked like we were better off. We we actually did just have a, a lot of debt. Um Right. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, Lord help. I mean, as an adult, I haven't personally had to experience, you know, that kind of poverty. Um, I, I was given a lot of opportunities to make money. Um, it, it wasn't that hard for me to find a job, uh, you know, working in telecom. And then after that, 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 that experience, you know, uh, allowed me to get into a larger company where I'm not wealthy, but, I'm not poor. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not in poverty. So I don't really have that personal experience as an adult of, of not having the opportunity to have a job, which is another thing. Um, I mean, it, it statistically is, uh, easier for me to find a job than somebody with a more, um, African sounding name. That's, that's probably a factor. Um, I, I just don't have and that it comes, personal experience. It comes back to this deep need of heritage, right? <laughs> like, uh, and which, I mean, this is a place, uh, the reason I keep going, ra- like railing on this issue of heritage, like, is because, not because I think it's wrong. I think we should all value and know our roots. Um, I think that this is a place where people of color and, uh, white Southern people um, have a lot in common, except with the Southern people, a lot of it's based on white Southern people. It's based on ignorance. I mean, 
the rebel, the quote unquote rebel flag that everyone sports was not the Confederate flag. It was the uh, battle flag of Robert E. Lee. Um, so if it's about heritage, unless you're from Virginia and you have veteran, uh, you know, Civil War Confederate veteran ancestors, how is that at all heritage? I don't understand that. And uh, so I'm, I'm, um, I wish we could, maybe Thomas, we need to try to hunt down somebody who is deeply rooted in their, um, the heritage of, you know, their ethnicity and uh, talk to them about heritage, what it means to them. Because, I mean, uh, you know, I, I hear a lot of different stuff in the community I live in and uh, it's very, I, I can't find what it's really grounded in. Yeah, you know? I mean, I I hear that a lot. Um, uh, a lot of people who um, are big fans of the rebel flag um, say it's just part of their heritage. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with the the cornerstone speech. Yeah, yeah, I I heard that on the. Uh, let's let's be sure let's be sure to drop that in like the the show notes. You know, like whenever we have accessible links via iTunes and stuff like that. Let's throw that speech down there if we can find it. Cause it is kind of disturbing. <laughs> Sam, I, I want to touch more on this focus of systemic racism. Um, and uh, like you've talked a lot about the dietary issue of um, people of color, people that live in urban areas. I don't want to, and that's another thing. I don't want to leave white people that live in poverty out of this conversation because it's not only a racism issue, it's a, it's kind of a class issue because I mean, I live in here in the deep South. I'm very used to, I mean, I've been referred to and I've lived at times in my life in trailer parks and I've been called trailer trash and I've been called, uh, you know, this, that or the other white trash. And it's not something that is used in a derogatory way from blacks to whites. It's something that's used from whites to whites. And so, uh, you know, this issue of the uh, dietary, I mean, that comes down to, I mean, what are you going to find in a convenience store? Uh, there's no fresh food. Uh, there's no, uh, everything's processed <laughs> and, and the, the biggest selections, uh, what do you think the biggest selection of food beverage you're going to find in a convenience store? Is? Oh, obviously it's going to be soda pop, depending on where you are regionally. Um, high fructose corn syrup. There were, yeah. And there was one more I was Alcohol. looking for, uh, and that would be the number one thing I would go to buy at a, a gas station or convenience alcohol. store is alcohol. So, uh, yep. <laughs> um, what, you know, what are the options? I don't have a lot of options. I'm miserable. I can't find a job. People hate me for no reason. Uh, people that don't know me hate me. I'm looked at as a threat. I, I hate to feel that way. I've felt that way in the past. I have been afraid of black people in the past and it's disgusting to me i don't know the individual i don't know them if and it if just because somebody's bigger than me 
uh, doesn't mean I should immediately be in fear mode. I don't do that with white people. I've never done that with white people in my past. I've never been afraid of large white men. So why um, why do you think that is? Uh, you know, I. Um, what what else do you think? Could be Isn't it amazing how conditioned we have become through media and news stories and the depiction of people of color in film? Uh, drive through mm-hmm. the black neighborhoods. You lock your doors. So I I worked the inner city of Toledo now, and let me tell you that opened my eyes because I was just like you. Um, you would see an African American person and think, "Okay, I'm afraid of them. Are they going to jump me? What's going on?" And yeah, it is. It's shameful to think that way because they're a human just like you or I. But it really wasn't until I was exposed yeah. to it and I talked to these people, and you know, I began to understand their stories and where they came from. That I really saw, well, they're no different than us. They just have less resources. That's really all it is. And like you said, when they got nowhere to go, where are they going to turn? They're going to turn to uh, alcohol. You're going to have increased drugs. They're Again, it's just coming down to trying to survive. And it's it's prime for things like gang activity to come in because for many, it's a way out. It's a way to make some money and make a living. And as a result, as a result, we've got this, this subculture that, that has emerged in these poverty communities. And it, it's just, we need to get over this. And it's something that I've been working on personally, um, trying to engage with people of color and, you know, see, see them as they, you know, as they are as human beings. And, and that's really, really what I think anyone that can ask for is to be, just be treated like you want to be treated, you know? I mean, uh, you'd mentioned, you know, the gang activity. Um, that's even also kind of, in some circumstances, kind of a form of, for lack of a better word, like community policing, where um, people don't trust law enforcement to come in and actually enforce the law without killing innocent people. I mean, yeah. I've talked to numerous people who are, I mean, the police are the last people they're going to call if something's happening. They're going to call their you know, their, their neighbor, their friend, um, relatives, anybody before the police, um, that's kind of where, you know, if you've got your own group of people with guns, you take care of your own, um, because who else can you trust if you don't trust the police? Um, that's just an unfortunate consequence. And in essence, that, that further serves to isolate the, the the people in these communities too. Um, it creates that segregated barrier because they've created an insular community for themselves and it prevents integration. It prevents them from trying to leave those communities because that's what they know. So I wish I had some good answers here, <laughs> but do you think that kind of, do you think that could be like, you know, I've heard people use as like an anecdotal argument of uh black people want segregation um do you think some of what we're talking about could be involved in that well i mean they've already they've already been segregated from the rest of society just through like we were talking about through redlining They've, they've already kind of been segregated so now they're kind of left on their own with nobody to trust 
what else do you do from there? I mean, do you just invite the people who isolated you and cut you off into your community back? I mean, mm -hmm. what are you supposed to do? Yeah, I, I think th I think that could be attached to a lot of. I mean, if if people of color um, appear to be and this is and this is the frustration in this because it's I, I hate to like I'm trying to think and and put myself in the position of I think about it all the time like how would my life have been lived if I were if I would have been born as a person of color. Um, and it feels like what we've talked about, I'm seeing, I think I'm seeing a pattern and it's that this idea of black people holding tightly to their culture, um, which is well and good. I'm all for it. I love, I mean, I freaking love black culture. 90% of my, um, the joy of my life would not be here without rock and roll. So <laughs> I love black culture and I absolutely res respect it. And, and every facet, hip hop, uh, you know, everywhere, the art, the, uh, just the, the personality and ch charisma of black culture. Okay. People of culture in general, also Latino and our Latinx. I, I, I want to try to be careful and refer to cultures the way we want to be referred to and, and all people, I don't want to leave marginalize anybody. But uh, I think I'm seeing a pattern, whereas they hold on to their roots because it's the only thing that gives them strength. Mm. Like you have all these other people saying, you need to look and talk and act this way. And why can't you just be like this? And all I see is you doing this, that, and the other. And so they, they cling tightly to whatever uh, cultural um, strength they can find, hope that they can find. And then at the same time, um, people who, you know, people of color that might be trying to really push forward in education and push forward into like getting to a place where they can have, uh, individually have a better life. Like, and then, like you said, they're treated as traitors to their own communities. This seems like either way, black people are getting, are going to get the short end of the stick. I think that's a fair assessment. You know, they get pressure from both sides. Yeah. It's crazy. Sorry, guys. I This is part of my ADHD mind, like, taking over <laughs> when I listen to this because I'm like, well, is that connected to this? Um, it's terrible. And, and I, I, I hope – I'm sure we're probably going to have a guest soon that will probably be um, on the other side of this conversation, and I would love to hear that. But uh, I don't know. I'm rambling at this point, guys. Do you guys have any thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> oh my! So I, I, I just, I just want to say that I'm, I'm thankful for the role that I am in now because it has opened my eyes. I work for a healthcare system that embraces uh, cultural diversity. Uh, a good majority of my leaders are people of color and women and it's just it's a great atmosphere here to work for and it really is eye-opening um so i'm sorry i'm sorry that i that i uh have nothing to really strongly debate um <clears throat> to disagree with you guys on of course <laughs> but uh, should you ever need me in the future uh as a voice i was actually uh, going to ask you if you would be 
interested in participating in um, conversations to add some of your perspective uh, with yes. uh, maybe some people that disagree or have questions or want to challenge uh, uh, maybe your positions. Absolutely. You know, I, I love hearing you say that, that, you know, a lot of the people in your field are, you know, going to be people of color in the community. And they, they, that's the wonderful thing. The majority of people that I meet in social work, um, the majority of people I've met in immigration work for that matter. And don't get me wrong. There's individuals in those fields that I am deeply in a, disappointed with and can't stand. But, uh, you meet a lot of uh, beautiful people who see the see the racism issues and they say, okay, I am going to deal with that and I'm going to get into this uh, these you know organizations or institutions and I am going to work my absolute hardest. And a lot of time, I think a lot of people involved in that have to like bite their tongue and like take a lot of um, shit from, uh, the people involved in these fields and in these institutions. Um, a lot of people I meet in social services are people of color. A lot of people I meet in immigration services are, are from, they're not from America and it's because there's a problem, (laughs) you know, and they, they're like, well, if no one's going to do anything about it, I am. And, uh, that's Mm -hmm. wonderful to hear because I wanted to ask the next question, which I was going to say, I don't want to get you in trouble, um, but do you do you see in the field that you're in, do you ever see racism on the side of the institution? Or I want to necessarily say the inst- on behalf of the institution or on the organization. I'm sure they have uh, policies that are strong, but do you see, have you met individuals in your field that are racist? I, in the field, no. Patients, yes. Um, <laughs> I did have a patient who told me that he did not want to see um, a foreign doctor and went on to say, you know, brown colored people shouldn't work on me, that sort of thing. Um, Man, if anything, it's a, it's a <laughs> lack, it's a lack, lack of education when I do see an issue, um, yeah. seeing a provider say, hey, I don't understand. Why is my patient not showing up to their appointments? Um, Why do they even try? Why are they even scheduling and joking about things like that? And that's because, well, they're coming. Some of these providers are second, third generation physicians. They've always come from a privileged background. And now they're working in an inner city clinic as a part of their education. So this is the first time they're encountering these issues. And the disconnect is there. And we have to do a better job of providing education to to essentially upper levels of healthcare who've never experienced this stuff, mm-hmm. that there are barriers out there for these patients and they may lack transportation to even get to the appointment. That's, that's wild. And, and I just want to say, uh, you know, my, both my little brother and my grandmother on my dad's side would not be alive if it weren't for uh, people of color that were doctors. Yep. Well, same here. So I, I just want to be, I just, I want to say that now that it, it, they have saved uh, lives of the white people in my family. So and it, um, it's so interesting. I work for a Catholic health system and it's, it's cool because <laughs> there are people of every faith that, that work there. Uh, we've got Sikhs, we've got Muslims, we've got 
uh, atheists. I mean, the whole the whole range of uh, of belief systems, and we all work together, and it's it's a beautiful thing. I have one more question, and um, that question would be more uh, along. I I don't want to. I don't want our conversation to feel one sided to people. Um, I have a tendency to feel like if I'm going to uh, really push on an issue, I also want to push on the criticisms of maybe organizations or people involved that maybe, um, you, you know, I, I want to be I want to be willing to change myself before I can change anybody else. Is there anything, any places in your organizations or institution that where you see uh, – that we really got to change. I mean, you've mentioned that a little bit. Would you go into a little more depth? Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously the, one of the things that attracted me to healthcare is the fact that we're far from perfect. Um, mm-hmm. even though we're good at, at clinical care delivery, we lack the ability to address social factors and my fight, my, my personal mission has been to, change that to begin addressing these, these socioeconomic problems that are, that are leading to poor health outcomes and increasing diversity and inclusion within the organization. Um, there's, there's a lot of work to do and we're still far from, far from being there. Uh, I would love to see, I worked with um, the, it's a drug correction facility for a little bit. And I went in there and assisted those individuals with applying for Medicaid. That way, when they came out, they would have access to primary care and resources, resources to help them. I would love to see us be able to hire some of those people to fill this social work. role. Yeah, the problem yeah. is a lot of the policies within healthcare. Well, if you have a felony, we're not going to hire you. So, and this is a whole issue in and of itself when we get into the criminal justice system, but um, <laughs> I can talk on almost any of these issues, uh, but, but we, these are the changes we need to make. If we are to truly to create an equitable system, we need people of all backgrounds, all beliefs and all views working together um, to serve our population. You talked about uh, you work with a lot of people who are underprivileged. Um, in your experience, uh, do you feel like there actually is any kind of a barrier to good care or, or not? There's absolutely barriers to good care. Um, just a few examples. Uh, African-Americans are less likely to receive appropriate pain therapy in the ED um, for long bone fractures, which are extremely painful. Uh, they are less likely to be scribed opiates than white patients. Um, African-American patients are, are recommended for bypass surgery at a lower rate than white patients, even when you control for insurance and education. Um, there are all kinds of levels of bias that exist within the healthcare system. And on top of that, we also have a, a very poor history with how we treated African-Americans in healthcare, um, experimenting on slaves. Uh, we did a lot of, a lot of unethical things when it came to learning gynecology and the procedures, I know they experimented on women um, quite extensively, which developed some great procedures that are life-saving today, but it came at a cost where they did not anesthetize the patients. Um, and 
most of the uh, research from the mid 1800s about gynecological care were all from the South and what they did to slaves. Um, <clears throat> so there is a history, a systemic history within healthcare and the way we teach doctors um, and nurses about race. And there, there's just so many misnomers out there. We need to really work on improving that aspect um, of the overall system. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine people kind of pushing back and saying, yeah, that's, that's horrible that that's in the past. Um, but it is in the past, you know, it, with our current system, I've, I've heard the argument a number of times that we have the best healthcare system in the world. Um, and we shouldn't compromise that it is kind of from your role within, within the industry. Is that opinion shared by you or, or do you think that there needs to be any sort of compromise to allow for more access? And if so, what would that look like? So we, we, we have areas where we rock in healthcare. I mean, the United States, when you want cutting edge technology, the best treatments available, they are there if you can afford them. That seems to be the the this, the problem because we're going to see the disparities emerge in African-American and people of color and poverty communities because they're often using Medicaid and their access to care is more limited. So we have essentially a dichotomy in the United States where if you can afford it, you're getting the best care in the world. But if you can't, you're getting average to substandard care. And that's why we our outcomes in the United States are worse than what we see in socialized systems. With that said, and here we might actually have some disagreement because do I don't support a socialized system because I feel that overall that's going to limit access across the board, especially to things like specialists, um, just due to the fact that you can only ration a, a, lim a resource to it, you know, so much. Right. Um, if we if we were to create uh, increased demand, we don't have the supply. And I can tell you from the inside, we don't have the supply to meet that demand. The boomer generation is going to really strain the resources we have in healthcare. As it is and now you add on millions of Americans who are trying to get access to care, and it's going to be problematic. Right. Is, is that kind of what it looks like in some other countries that have more socialized care, uh, such as like, you know, uh, Canada, Scandinavia, Canada, United Kingdom, uh, United Kingdom's a mess. Uh, they have they have some significant um, access issues there. Canada, a little less so. But if you need things like diagnostic imaging, you're waiting longer than in the United States. And then that's its own concern, because if you miss something, then, OK, now you're dealing with a bigger problem. I can go to the ED, have a CAT scan in 30 minutes and be out. I know this because it's happened to me. Um, I don't know what that would look like in Canada, to tell you the truth. I mean, when you're waiting hours in the room. I can touch on that a little bit. Generally, you are probably going to wait longer. Um, however, I, I mean, I from. And I've heard voices on both sides of this, but um, generally the quality of the care, the the wait times for just about everything may be longer, but the quality of care is um, what I've heard generally not too bad. Uh, the quality of care is pretty pretty well in in a lot of um, a lot of places. However, um, you know, I, I think about uh, a grandmother-in-law. You know, she's you look at situations with her where she's had to have surgeries and things like that. Um, 
kind of the administrative, the bureaucratic aspects of that are probably a little more difficult. But I I imagine that um, if you were maybe in the States, uh, it might be, there might be some major out-of-pocket expenses. Yeah. And, things like and, and I, I, could, I, I suffered a stroke last year. And um, the worst part of that entire experience was the fact that those bills start coming in and you're still trying to recover and mm-hmm. you know, you gotta, you're going to got to fight with the insurance company to get things covered. So mm-hmm. I think there is a better system. I think that we can find an American solution to our healthcare problems. And when I say that, I mean, let's not look to other countries to model. We can take ideas, but let's try to incorporate what makes our current system good and, and improve upon it with what's working for other healthcare systems. So I think, and that's where it comes down to where I think a, a big chunk of that is going to be addressing these social determinants, these social factors that are driving right. up our health costs. Uh, that and what, what would your take be on, you know, just the accessibility? Um, is there a way to improve that or not? Accessibility is tough because there's so much to accessibility. Um, health insurance is just the, the initial barrier. Um, the next thing is I've got patients who rely on Medicaid cabs in order to get to their appointments. These cab companies are so inundated with requests that these patients are showing up 30 to 45 minutes late and then they don't get seen uh, because the policy is to turn them away. Right. But where are we going to see them then? I mean, you know where they're going to show right. up. They're going to show up in the ED and that ED isn't going to be a cheap visit. So that's an access. And, and perspective too on that. When you say cabs, I wouldn't imagine yes. like that's v- like that's like buses too, like just straight up buses that are um, part of the uh, you know um, social services. I mean, we have we've got that here, you know, uh, all kinds of mm-hmm. different organizations that, and I mean, they've got buses and those buses are full, and uh, those buses have to be handicap accessible. Those buses have to be, I, you know, I've, I've worked in, um, I've worked for a human resources agency before and those buses have to be accessible. And a lot of the time on those buses, the only person on them helping is the driver. And you might have 15, 20 people on, or well, yeah, probably about 15 people on a 15 passenger bus uh, needing to get to doctor's appointments Things fall behind, <laughs> it, it, and, and you got to get one, you know, it, it's a mess. And those drivers, a lot of them only get paid maybe 50 cents above minimum wage. It's why I wasn't a driver for the company I worked for, you know? Uh, so, I mean, and, and every, every weak link in the chain makes it a little bit harder. So if you have a bus driver or a cab driver for uh, healthcare services um, trying to help people, I mean, they're overworked, they're underpaid. And uh, a lot of the times, some of the people that they might have to deal with might be really difficult people. And uh, you're going to get people, there's going to be a high turnover rate for stuff like that. I I worked in uh, juvenile justice and, uh, you know, children that were uh, ward of the state, I worked in a boys group home. And, I mean, everybody who worked in that place was pissed off 
everybody. And nobody wanted to do the job because nobody else wanted to do the job. It's it's a it's a scary situation and and a lot of that. But we see we see the same thing in nursing homes. We see it in um, homes for people with mental yeah. issues. There are these the staff working there are getting paid around ten dollars an hour. They're expected to be on call and available mm-hmm. at all times. And there's just there's no funding in place to actually. I mean, one of the big things we could do is start reforming. You know those those sort of roles and in increasing pay because we're we're, we're failing miserably in, in those sort of environments. Yeah, the workloads the workload for a lot of that kind of stuff is insane. And and uh, you know the more the more grants companies you know human resources companies get, the more hoops they got to jump through. Yep. You know. Follow up question: Do people hate Obamacare? <laughs> Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, <laughs> is what Trump says true? If, if you're on the marketplace, odds are you do, but that has nothing to do with how Obamacare was written. Um, I believe it was intentionally built to fail in that regard. The wow. individual mandate the penalties were never severe enough to really drive people onto the marketplace as a result the risk pools um were heavily cited in the chronic illness favor so these insurance companies found themselves shelling out a lot more money than they were supposed to had you gotten the youth enrolled had you gotten healthy people onto those plans um so the result is that all of these insurance companies are pulling out of the marketplace, leaving very limited options. One of the good things that came out of the ACA was the expansion of Medicaid, which not all states have done yet, but we're getting there, um, and the pre-existing conditions clauses. So I have not heard anything negative about them, to tell you the truth. Uh, and I, I, Are you kind of saying that it, it didn't go far enough to get everybody – Enrolled. Yes, it's kind of too much of a middle ground. I think we allowed we allowed the uh, we allowed young adults to stay on their parents' policies until the age of twenty six. Well, the majority of health insurance is provided by um, employers, so that did absolutely nothing for the private marketplace. So, by not forcing those individuals onto the marketplace, we need those dollars coming from the young who are not utilizing healthcare resources to help support those patients right. who are utilizing the healthcare resources. And it, it never emerged. And when we said, oh, it's going to be a $500 penalty, most people were like, I'm just going to eat that. 500 bucks is cheaper than what they're going to charge me on the marketplace. So, uh, I, I, I kind of like the Germans approach where if you don't carry it, there's a significant financial penalty and that's the only way. You're- but how do you push something like that through in America? <laughs> I mean, that's a real question. I mean, we're struggling yeah. just to keep Medicare up and running at this point. Right. That's interesting to me because you said you had uh, originally had more libertarian um, mm-hmm. values. How, how would you reconcile those issues? What were your problems with that? I was opposed to the ACA upon, uh, its initial passage, uh, I felt that the individual mandate was unconstitutional, but that was before I worked in healthcare. That was before I saw the impact. And you know, the best what is it, the, the best teacher in the world is travel, and it's true. You know, going and seeing and interacting with these people, and it opens your eyes to the reality on the ground. 
Um, that was before I was sick. That was before I had a health condition. I have diabetes. I dealt with a stroke. Okay. I saw how quickly life can change for people. Those are the eye openers. And if you born with a silver spoon in your mouth and never had to deal with struggle in your life, it's real easy to look down on somebody in poverty and say, what the hell are you doing? Because you've never seen it. You, you don't know what it's like to struggle to choose between medication or putting food on your table. Yeah, too. I mean, my my health care is provided by my job. Um, I mean, when your only options for job employment are, you know, the Wendy's and, uh, you know, the subway, you don't have anything else, you know, close enough that you can actually get yourself to every day. You're not going to buy health insurance from the cost that of health insurance for those sort of jobs exceeds the weekly pay. Um, I I did have patients who didn't qualify for Medicaid, and they said, "Well, they, I can't take my employer's insurance, or I won't make any money. It, it right. takes all of my income." So it, we still have these people that fall in the middle, and I think that we can find some yeah. common ground with the Medicaid program and becoming a little more flexible with it if we could fund it, uh, in order to kind of help close close those gaps for people who don't fall within the two. Ultimately, though, we need to separate employment from health insurance. I agree with that for a number of reasons. Um, one of the reasons that uh, was kind of brought up to me that I hadn't thought about was people talking about you know their spouses um, being on their employer's health insurance plan. For spouses who are kind of in that situation where they don't have an option where they work or if they don't work, um, and if they're in a bad relationship, that's just one more barrier to get out of that because you not only lose, you know, whatever housing situation you're in, you're losing your health insurance option as well. Absolutely. How do you, I mean, what kind of is your take on kind of, you know, separating employment Mm -hmm. from health insurance options? The only way that's going to work is if we can control healthcare costs and bring them down. Um, if we're going to stay with this privatized system, I think a um, public option would be great. Um, it's going to force insurance companies to really look at their risk structure, the way that contracts are being written now. So there's, let me, let me step back for a second. There's this transition going on in healthcare right now. It's huge. Um, we're moving from volume-based care. So the more patients you through the door, the more revenue you're going to make to value-based care to where we are now being paid based off of these patient outcomes. So if you have a patient who comes to the doctor, doesn't get better, and the care is really, well, that's paying for that. The healthcare system is instead of the insurance company. So this transition is taking place and the way that these health health insurance contracts are being written is changing. So now we're getting capitated payments. You're given a flat dollar amount that you have for your patients and you've got to manage your patients for that amount. And if you don't, well, that's your loss. And then any savings you generate, you get to keep. And then so there's incentive for the for the providers to save money. Um, that's changing the face of healthcare going forward. We're still in that transition period, though, and I think as this deeds will be successful, it's just going to take time. Do you know who, like, uh, who are the powers that be that kind of started pushing for that? 
So believe it or not, uh, Medicare, uh, Medicare is trying to control costs because the Medicare system is under pressure to control costs. Um, as, as, more, as more boomers are retiring, they've only got so many dollars to hand out and they're trying to um, really help control how much outflow they have. Uh, the ACA, again, is was a driving factor here. Um, it created the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, and they actually started developing these alternative payment models, which uh, many healthcare systems are now jumping on because this is the future. This is where everyone's going to end up. So in talking with, you know, about the ACA, what, I mean, there's been a big push since 2016 uh, to repeal it. What, what would that look like if we actually were to roll all of that back? It would be devastating. It would be absolutely devastating. If they, if the, Expansion for Medicaid is pulled back. You're immediately going to see people who, for the first time, are receiving primary and preventative care services. Uh, they're doing that, and they're going to be back at square one. Um, yep. That's brutal right there. Uh, in essence, I would say the private marketplace is already dead um, and essentially has already been repealed. <laughs> just inadvertently through executive mandate uh there are no there's no enforcement of penalties anymore so as long as we need to maintain the pre-existing condition clause and the medicaid expansion those two are vital we lose either one of those i want to touch on that uh the kind of medicaid expansion type thing um when i first when i was younger i think i was trying to remember how old i was maybe 23 24 um, when I tried to first apply for um, Ten Care, which is you know the the state based um, kind of social level healthcare, um, when I applied, I was refused because the only people that were being approved this is what the this is what the health department told me the only people being approved are women with cervical cancer or Pregnant women. Mm-hmm. Those are the only people they were approving. So anybody else, fair game. You know, you you can you got to figure it out. And I was one of those people. And for a long time, I had a lot of difficulty. And then, um, you know, the uh, Affordable Care Act came in, and uh, I had an opportunity to get insurance where you know it seemed affordable, uh, at, at least uh, from uh, you know starting off. My first year uh, was affordable, and then premiums went up a uh, hundred dollars a month the net following year. And so, uh, you know, uh, what option do I have? This is a, a big issue for a lot of people. Well, uh, you know, quit if you can't afford to live, quit having kids. Well, the kids are the only way they get assistance, mm-hmm. and and our, our welfare system is. It is almost set up in a perverse manner because essentially we do we incentivize the additional children. Not that we shouldn't, but we we need to restructure this welfare system so individuals can be awarded for doing the right things, for making the decisions that help them crawl to the next socioeconomic situation. I mean, and right now, that just is not in place. <laughs> It's, it's, there, it's had right. so much opposition, um, 
And you talked about, you know, when the ACA was enacted, you initially were opposed to it. It seems like there, I mean, that's not really the front and center issue anymore, but there still isn't a lot of opposition. Um, is, do you think there's just misconceptions of what the ACA actually is and does? Um, is it just an education problem or people philosophically opposed with, you know, maybe some valid reason or, or what? Is it just not realistic? I think it's an education problem. Um, again, we had the lar- we had the 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 right wing spouting this is socialism. This is the this is, well, we're only one step away from communism. I mean, this is what we're hearing now about having to wear <laughs> a freaking face mask to the store. Uh, right. It's silly. And it's because people don't, they're not actually seeing the benefits. Um, you've got the right who holds the wealth, at least the, the elites in the right hold the wealth. And they're saying they don't want to see these taxes go up on themselves. So they're convincing all the people who follow them. Hey, this is socialism. Let's not do that. And people will listen. They'll eat it up because, again, as I said earlier, they tie it back to these constitutional principles. And that's what you think they actually believe in. Not only that, not only that, religious principles. Yes. Religious principles as well. Very much so. So they know how to play their base. Yeah, so um, they, they play their base. And that's one of the things, especially recently, which has caused me to turn away from the right, is they would say, well, look, you know, we need our guns to protect us in the event of a tyrannical takeover from the leadership and next thing you know we're deploying federal forces in oregon and they're not making a peep about it you know where are your principles on this um the right doesn't have any at least the leadership on the right they're twisting everything that trump is doing to fit their narrative and they're not standing on what they say they truly believe and that bothered me um especially with covid and the pandemic going on we've got people's lives on the line and they're playing games yeah uh, i mean i've i've been told a number of times if you're so scared then just stay home and that's not the point i i mean i likely have already had covid i may not have to worry about getting it again i don't know that yet but i'm honestly not that worried about myself i'm worried about those around me it's it's like i keep having to have that argument um and people just it's it's like they're ideologically opposed to having to care about people around them. And it's true. It, it, that's the problem with the conservative mentality. It's all very individualistic. Yeah. Uh, and it's all about what I need, what I want, what I do. Um, I don't care what the consequences are for other people. That's your problem. And I can't support that. I can't stand for that. No, I work in healthcare. <laughs> uh, it's I help others. That's, that's what we do. It, when you don't care about society and everybody in society doesn't care about the rest of society, you are a part of that society. You're affected. Um, I mean, you have kept really good track of uh, uh, the COVID numbers. Um, I mean, look at kind of the mentality in Florida and what's happening there right now. Absolutely. And actually, I, I, I geo-mapped a lot of the data recently. And if you look where all of the darker colors are, guess what? It's popping up in that Bible Belt. It's, you know, deep south. It's the areas, again, with high poverty rates. It's the traditionally red states that are experiencing this. I want, you know, you guys are talking about kind of your um, dissatisfaction with uh, this kind of, well, that's your problem. 
um, this kind of judgment of, well, the reason you're in that position is because you put yourself there. Um, I just want to throw a little perspective at you guys. I don't know sure where you're at, Sam, but, um, you know, I've been part of the evangelical church for the majority of my life. Um, and I'm just now really starting to uh, have some problems where I'm trying to disassociate from evangel- evangelicalism because of these issues. Um, so think about it this way. As I read through the Gospels um, in, in, the, in the Christian Bible, and I see Jesus repetitively talking about healing the sick— and taking care of the poor um, over and over and over. Uh, and and that seems like an extremely high priority to the God that uh, Christianity claims to follow. And then uh, the, the commonplace thing you see is, well, the reason they're doing this or that is because they, it's because of their sin and, um, but but that's never an issue in the New Testament. In fact, uh, I can recall a particular scripture where they said, Jesus, what sin did this man commit to be born blind? Because that was the viewpoint of the culture at the time. And he said, uh, it wasn't the sins of his mom. It wasn't the sins of his dad. It was not his sin. It was that... Uh, the glory of God might be revealed, and that, and so, I find it extremely difficult to reconcile um, that kind of behavior in my faith community. Uh, it, it, it's it's a big struggle of mine. Uh, <laughs> what do you guys have to think about that? Personally, I mean, many people would argue that healing. Um, they're referring to miraculous spiritual healings. Uh, I don't think I, I don't think that that scripture uh, can be pinned down to just that. Um, what do you guys think about that? <laughs> I don't know, Sam, if you have any kind of similar perspective on that, but the organization I work for is is based literally in the mission statement on the compassionate ministry of Jesus. Um, and the mission is to bring health and well-being to the poor, dying and underserved. That's what we do. And I don't understand the disconnect that exists among the, the right wing religious groups, the evangelical groups. Um, again, it's principles and they don't, people don't seem to have them. (laughs) Okay, so um, years ago, when my wife um, got her green card, her legal residency, please don't be confused that she's illegal. Um, that would, not, you know, that's not an issue for her. Um, and we can talk about this on another time. But that the, the legality issue of immigration for my wife um, was not a difficulty or an issue because you guessed it. She's white. Um, but the, my wife moved to, uh, America and moved to Tennessee. And, uh, my wife at the time when she, she 
moved here, she had worked for McDonald's previously um, while she was in college. And so that was kind of the the first kind of quick job she could get into while she lived here um, when she moved here. And so she started working at McDonald's here. And, uh, you know, political conversation comes up as it does here in uh, rural America. And um, the, the girl that she was talking with, had specifically, they had started talking, you know, my wife's a Christian and they started talking about their faith and what church churches they go to, yada, yada, yada. And, uh, at this time I was, um, extremely, uh, reformed theology. I was very hardcore kind of, um, Baptist. And so my wife kind of adhered to that naturally. And, uh, she, she was raised Baptist as well, um, so, you know, whenever, you know, when, when somebody says, oh, well, I grew up Baptist and then a person here in our culture in, in, in the deep South starts talking about that, it threw my wife for a loop because the first thing that came out of this girl's mouth was she had mentioned her church and her church was, uh, is a fairly large church in the community. Um, I mean, one of the bigger Baptist churches in the community. Uh, however, not the church that you and I attended together, Thomas, um, but another large Baptist church in the community. And um, she started talking about Obamacare with my wife and how it was evil, that it was satanic. And my wife's like, why do you think that? And she's like, because my pastor preached on it this Sunday. And he said that they the ACA was a um, ploy so that they could begin microchipping people with RFID chips to um, essentially create the mark of the beast where they could put all their medical records, vaccination records um, on these chips. They could literally put money on these chips and uh, all for the sake of, you know, controlling and destroying Christians. Um, and my wife came home that day and told me that story and I laughed and I said, um, no, you know, I'm, you know, me, I'm really a spiritual guy and I've studied the Bible a lot. I don't think that's what it's getting at. Uh, what do you guys think about that? What do you, what are your, what's your take on, uh, Uh, if if anything's the mark of the beast it's going to be the make America great again (laughs) (laughs) uh oh Um, I mean so it sounds like evangelicalism has driven you further from you know the far right end of uh, evangelicalism is that accurate yeah I guess so I mean, that kind of tends to be, I, I, I kind of see, you know, a unanimous opinion among the the far right. Um, and anybody that kind of deviates that tends to be more, um, you know, either middle or, or liberal. Uh, you don't really have many people on the right that, that kind of break from that, that type of attitude. It's a very all or nothing uh, and, you know, kind of what thing. we were talking about before. Right. And, uh, I mean, to me personally, um, it, 
it doesn't really affect me one way or the other what Jesus's opinions are on how we should treat each other or, you know, how, how we should, how our attitude should be. Cause I'm, I'm not religious. Um, personally, I, th I think that we do, you know, the right thing because it's the right thing, or we we're compassionate because that's the good thing for society. Um, we care about other people because that benefits people. Um, I want people to care about my health. So I care about their health. To me, that's just common sense. Yeah. Um, Religion doesn't really seem to be influencing that one way or the other. I mean, from Sam's perspective, it kind of sounds like those people want to do good things, regardless of what their religious beliefs are. Um, and clearly, people on the right have, you know, for many of them, some of the same religion, uh, even the same denomination sometimes, and they have a very drastically different, you know, approach to life and their attitude about you know, who's responsible for who. So to me, it doesn't seem that religiosity is really what's affecting it. It seems like people are coming in either being compassionate and empathetic or not, and then applying that to whatever religion they happen to belong to. What do you think about that? Sam, do you have anything for that? I, I completely agree with that assessment. Um, it's funny. I've been called liberal arguing with conservatives and I've been called a right wing nut, argue, nut arguing with leftists, but uh, yeah. religion's a tool and mm -hmm. believe what I'm, I'm a spiritual individual. I have my own belief structure, um, but I would never use that to force anything on anyone. That should be the true. I mean, honestly, it's the libertarian perspective. My beliefs are my beliefs, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm not going to do anything that actively harms another person. And as we get further to the right, right, it's my beliefs are my beliefs. And I don't care if I hurt another person because that's your problem. So, well, and I mean, to be fair, I, having come from the far right, um, at least my my perspective at the time was that if you do care about other people and you want to save them from hell, mm -hmm. you, you convince, you mm -hmm. convince them, you convert them over. Otherwise you're letting mm -hmm. them, you know, be damned. So, I mean, it, 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 I don't think it's entirely selfish. Um, at least their motivation on their side. I think that there are some people that do care about other people. Um, and they, they, from their perspective, if you have more of a live and let live libertarian attitude, then, you're kind of just letting people carry themselves off to hell. That is, yes, that's problematic to the whole idea of evangelism. Um, and so here's my hot take. And now, Thomas, you said you don't think um, that uh, religiosity has an effect on whether people want to do good or not. Um, it's generally the I individual. Might walk that I might walk that back a little bit because um, I do tend to see people who are just sincerely considerate, genuinely good mm -hmm. people who care about people and, you know, they, they might be religious. They might not if they are. Um, they tend to look at their religion and pull all of the good qualities out of it. They pick and um, choose. If they're not, yeah. they're just doing it. Right, right. And I mean, if they're not religious, they don't have that to sort through. They don't have to explain right. away the bad parts or ignore the bad parts. And they're just kind of 
being a good person. Right. Um, however, I have seen people who might otherwise be really decent people, but because they're being influenced by That's their, where their I culture was and go. their religion. Yeah, it that can affect a person to who otherwise might be, you know, a great person or a great parent, maybe kick their kid out because they're gay. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, the uh any number of things that you know, that religion teaches that actually is detrimental to people, you know, in their well being. So I, I, I would walk that back just a little yeah. bit. But yeah, generally See, I think I, people do try to be good or not. I think it's I think it's um I disagree with the first statement, but it's on the premise of, no, actually, religiosity does affect um, behaviors of an individual. And that's most of the time because um, I believe that it's highly likely that the majority of people that are in any given religion are in it because of their um, socioeconomic status, uh, where they live, um, and so a person, education. yeah, education, that's a, that's a huge one. Um, because I mean, uh, you're nine times out of 10, if you're a fundamentalist Christian, you're going to either be putting your child in a private Christian school or homeschool. Um, I mean, I, I went to both. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I would say that the social survival aspects for people are a big factor. And there are a lot of people who may disagree with kind of some of the mainstream thoughts uh, and ideologies of the people at the top or the majority, the group think. They may have oppositional views, but um, they're going to either, one, be silenced by their leaders, or two, um, they're st- they're just going to keep their mouth shut because they don't want to make waves. Um, they look at their churches and they think, well, my church is good for the community. So if there's something that I don't necessarily agree with, um, that can be my own opinion. That can be my personal evic- uh, conviction, but it doesn't have to um, affect anyone else in the church. Uh, so, so, so I, the more and more I look at behaviors in the majority of evangelical churches, the more I see a lot of it is just social survival. You get people at the top who want to stay at the top. They want to stay in the pulpit. They want to stay on the worship team. They want to stay on the elder board. And so uh, they refuse to make any kind of waves because, uh, you know— um, group think in my mass hysteria. If I make waves, uh, the majority, uh, in this social group, it may not be the majority in the world, but this, the majority in my social, um, environment is, uh, opposing me. And I can't tell you how many times guys, I cannot tell you enough how many times I have confronted, um, Christian leaders, and I said, what you're teaching is wrong, and let me show you in the Bible where it is wrong. And then they say, well, that's your opinion, and I don't interpret the Scripture that way. And uh, I think you need to go. Well, and I mean, even in our church that we went together, um, uh, my mom, who's gone to seminary and educated herself and really changed her views on a lot of things, she approached our pastor and Kind of shockingly, his response to some of the things were that you just can't preach that. 
mm-hmm. um, because it, it goes against, you know, the, the doctrine of, of the, um, uh, the, the denomination. denomination and there's just certain, right. You just can't go against, uh, that, that ingrained idea. Um, and I think you, you really did hit it. It, for some people, it really is their entire livelihood. Are you familiar with, uh, the clergy project? Mm-mm, no. So that's actually a, a program, um, of clergymen who have lost their belief are still in the ministry because they don't have any kind mm. of other way to support themselves. They've dedicated their whole lives to yeah. that and over time lost their belief and they're stuck. So it's kind of a support system to help them get out of that, out of that situation where they can find some other means of, of supporting, you know, themselves and their families. That can that's be helpful. really an interesting, uh, right. That's terribly helpful. But I mean, that's, that, that's, wow. that's directly what you were talking about yeah. it being, you know, a social system that people may not even always be bought in to be stuck participating in it. Oh, definitely. Um, you know, the more, and this is the sad part, and I'm not going to pigeonhole every evangelical church, um, but I have concerns. I have deep, deep concerns for every evangelical church. Um, but the majority of evangelical churches, especially um, I would say the biggest and the smallest, uh, churches that are below 50 um, and the churches that are probably above 1,000, um, there are systems in there that are that operate the way the same way any major cult has operated uh you know uh, and i didn't understand this or, or see it until i started studying scientology and once i started looking at you know what the science, the church of scientology does i was like whoa the correlations here are super similar to evangelicalism uh the way the leadership works the way you know and and not only that but just there, I mean, there's good and bad people, and I would say every denomination. But um, since, ironically and tragically, since the Reformation um, of the of the uh, the Church, the Protestant Reformation in 500 AD, since then, um, Reformation's kind of out of the question. Um, that uh, you know. Um, there was this idea uh, of always reforming that never um, – it may have been uh, fundamental in the early portions of the Protestant church, but it's definitely not now. And I would argue that because um, at the time of the Enlightenment, the, uh, the church's response was the biblical doctrines of inerrancy. So – the theologies that they uh, believed and adopted, um, now not only are their theologies, the Bible's out of the question. You can't you can't reinterpret or change anything in the Bible, but now you can't really change any of our theological ideas. Um, those are held j- equally as high as um, the Bible. You know the, the 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 teachings of Calvin or Martin Luther. Equally as valuable to the, the Protestant Church as the Bible, and I'm I guarantee you, people will say they aren't. But anytime you bring up an imposing interpretation, what do they fall back on? They fall back on the apologetics of Calvin and Luther and and John Edwards and all of their their heroes. Um, the 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 biggest 
I would say with the exception of the Catholic Church, uh, the the Protestant, you know, evangelical American church has the largest amount of uh, idols. Uh, I, I, when I say idols, I mean uh, human figures that they lift up and look up to as biblical authority. Uh, because people like Martin Luther and John Calvin are, they, uh, they interpret what biblical authority is. Um, and that's, you know, that was what I believed devoutly for, uh, you know, five of the last eight years of my life. And um, it's scary. You know, the church I was at for five years, I look back now and I'm like, um, the, the leaders used cult tactics. They used the same tactics that cult leaders used. And uh, so I'm very, I am very concerned for any um, church that isn't willing to kind of bend on interpretation. And I don't know how many sermons you guys have heard where uh, a leader apologizes from the pulpit or he changes his view in the pulpit. <laughs> it doesn't happen. Um, the amount of people well, I mean, that if do you're that. Speaking for, Go ahead. Uh, if you're speaking for God, um, I mean, how can you be wrong? <laughs> Ooh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's a, that's a big topic. And, um, you know, that, that was honestly the ironic thing was, you know, what got me into the um, kind of reformed theology, the Baptist theology was uh, open-minded teachers in that camp, teachers that said, you know, we believe in predestination, but those who don't, um, if they follow Jesus, they are still, we can still see them as predestined, but they don't have to believe in that idea. That's a, that's an open-handed issue. Our, our, our doctrinal theology is, uh, our theologies and doctrines are open-handed and that's what brought me into place. And then I was like, Oh wait a minute! The vast majority of churches that are Reformed theology don't think that way. <laughs> they they are uh, they think that if you don't believe Tulip, which is an acronym that is the um, Reformed, you know, tenets of faith, you're uh, you're pro- you're going to burn in hell, and you're uh, you're destined to burn in hell for that matter. Sam, you, you said you're, you're spiritual. Um, how, I mean, do you, do you feel that that influences, uh, your perspective? Uh, what's, what's your take? So my, my beliefs are, again, I don't try to impose them on anyone. I believe personally that, that when I die, that there is an afterlife of some form. I can't be certain as to what that is. Uh, I believe that our time on earth is spent learning and to grow spiritually. Um, and the lessons that we learn and take with us are, are what move on with us uh, after we pass. So that's kind of where I stand on, on things. <clears throat> it's kind of a, just a personal yes. thing. Does that have any, uh, any bearing on kind of your attitude? Um in life in general, or if you, if you lost that belief, do you think that that your attitude would change at all? I've always tried to find answers to those deep questions of, you know, why we're here, 
what are we doing? What's the point of all of this? And I can't settle on the fact that there's nothing to this. Um, so I don't think my, my belief system would go anywhere. We can't answer these questions. There's just no way of ever really knowing what happens on the backside. So all, all I can do is live the best life I can based off of my values and uh, what I believe to be right. And that's obviously to, to help others as much as possible. And so we all, so we can all get through this as easily as, as, as we can because everyone's struggling in some way. Right. Kind of a, kind that's, of a, that's a great attitude. Yeah. Kind of like a agnostic mysticism, if you will. Yeah. I'm, I'm good with that. <laughs> right on. Well, <laughs> um, Sam, thank you for joining us. Um, I really enjoyed the discussion. Uh, you had some valuable input. Um, Thanks again. Uh, once again, uh, uh, if you want to support the show, um, patreon.com slash analyzed. And uh, have a good rest of your evening. Yeah, thanks, Sam. I Thank like you, your beers guys. every now and then. Thank you. I know the beers are good. I don't drink them myself. Support us at patreon.com slash analyzed. To become a guest, visit analyzedpodcast.com.